KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. An exclusive look at COVID-19 outbreak locations. Every man and woman should be able to evaluate their own risk. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Public health officials talk about the vaccine rollout and challenges ahead. And another encouraging um, word that I've heard healthcare providers say that the vaccines being available gives them hope. And from environmental pressures to food access in underserved communities, a look back at some of the impactful stories of 2020. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Community outbreaks of COVID-19 have touched every corner of San Diego County and all types of establishments over the past nine months, but they are most prevalent in big box stores, restaurants, and group living situations like nursing homes and jails, according to county outbreak records obtained exclusively by KPBS. Since the onset of the pandemic, county officials have kept outbreak locations secret. Instead, only listing outbreaks by category such as bar, restaurant, or business. What do these numbers and types of locations mean for the public? Here's KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser. Uh, yes, so I'll be here in the morning time yeah, to avoid the crowded people. Il Ho Hong was dressed in a mask and plastic gloves while shopping last week at the Walmart on College Avenue. He's worried about catching COVID-19 while in the store. If we aware that previously they have someone in there, maybe I'm not going to use the store. Maybe I'm going to use the other store, maybe. Hong didn't know it, but that Walmart did have an outbreak at the end of October with at least 24 cases. It was one of 14 different outbreaks at local Walmarts since the start of the pandemic. Like Hong, if you've gone out at all since the pandemic first struck, you quite likely walked into a place that's had an outbreak. That's according to a KPBS analysis of more than 1,000 outbreak records dating from March through the end of November. At least 208 outbreaks have hit restaurants. Popular chain restaurants like Olive Garden, Cheesecake Factory, Denny's, and the Broken Yolk Cafe have each had multiple outbreaks. 
At least 125 outbreaks have occurred in large retailers and grocery stores like Costco, Target, Home Depot, Trader Joe's, and Walmart, according to the records KPBS obtained. A Walmart spokeswoman responded in a statement that the retailer has taken steps to make the shopping experience as safe as possible. During this challenging time, we're working to balance health and safety concerns while still meeting the needs and expectations of our customers and associates, she said. However, just because you visited a place that had an outbreak doesn't necessarily mean you are exposed to the virus and doesn't mean you can catch COVID-19 by going there now. An outbreak means three or more people with COVID-19 who aren't close contacts were in that place over the same 14-day period. It's possible none of them caught the virus at the outbreak location. Being the site of an outbreak doesn't necessarily mean the businesses had unsafe practices. Also, the records reviewed by KPBS don't reveal whether employees or patrons were infected. That means it's hard to say how the virus might have spread, says UC San Diego epidemiologist Rebecca Fielding-Miller. If you have nine people report that they happen to be in a Walmart within a 14-day window because they were grocery shopping, that I think you would have to narrow down to a much more specific window. She also says context is important. A higher number of outbreaks at retail chains is likely partly because they have multiple locations, more customers, and more employees. So you wouldn't say, oh, Otay Mesa has only had one outbreak, but Denny's has had five, therefore Otay Mesa is safer. This is the first time the public has seen the list of specific outbreak locations for San Diego County. County officials have kept them secret, instead only listing outbreaks by category, such as bar slash restaurant or business. Frontline employees and union representatives interviewed by KPBS agree that detailed outbreak records should be made public. Who feels safe at work when they're dealing with the public? Jaime Vasquez is with the union that represents Costco employees. Especially now with the Christmas shopping, uh, you have packed uh, warehouses almost on a daily basis. He says Costco is allowing half capacity, but argues it should be classified as retail, which would keep it to 20%. The store did not respond to a request for comment. Devin Hannigan works as a supervisor at Vons on Balboa Avenue. He says it's important for the public to know where outbreaks are happening. Every man and woman who works for this company should be able to evaluate their own risk and be able to come up with an idea of what's too much. And joining us now is Claire Tregesser, KPBS investigative reporter. Claire, welcome. Thank you. So, Claire, what does the data you obtained about COVID-19 outbreaks in San Diego County tell us generally? Right. So let me um, break down a a couple different things. Um, We found that there have been at least 208 outbreaks in restaurants, bars and restaurants, um, and specifically popular chains like the Olive Garden, Cheesecake Factory, Denny's, and the Broken Yolk Cafe have had multiple outbreaks each. Um, and then we found 205 outbreaks in businesses, you know, car repair, pet care, banking, shipping, and then 125 outbreaks specifically at businesses large retailers and grocery stores, including Walmart, Costco, Target, Home Depot, 
and and Trader Joe's. And then, you know, not surprisingly, which has been news, I think, since the beginning of the pandemic, a large number of outbreaks in nursing homes and other group living situations like jails, rehab facilities, and shelters. Um, and we did find that there was some breakdown in terms of zip codes where, where the outbreaks were happening. 136 were in just five lower income zip codes in East and South County where, you know, more frontline workers, uh, people who can't work at home necessarily live, but also 86 outbreaks in Pacific Beach and Gaslamp zip codes, which are kind of known as two of the county's biggest party spots. And then the last thing, um, and I think we'll hear more about this in a later story, but uh, seven casinos in the county have had outbreaks and they've had a combined case count of more than 638 cases linked to those outbreaks. Interesting. So how does the county then define an outbreak and, and how does it determine where they occur? Right. So it's really important to stress that the definition of uh, outbreak with the county is is pretty broad. So it's three or more people who test positive for COVID-19 who aren't close contacts, meaning, you know, they don't live together or spend a lot of time together. Um, we're in the same place over the same 14-day period. So those people maybe never even crossed paths. They could have been there on different days. And so while we have this list of outbreaks, people should know that just because you visited a place that had an outbreak doesn't necessarily mean you were actually exposed to the virus. And of course, doesn't mean that you can catch COVID-19 by going there now. Wow. With with such a a broad... uh definition, um, how reliable is that information? Right. Well, I mean, it's something that I really learned through doing this reporting is, of course, there are trends that we are seeing that that make sense. You know, big box retailers, for example, have had a lot of outbreaks uh, while, you know, maybe locations like Whole Foods have had none, which suggests partially that, that more people maybe go to these uh, big box retailers and work there. So there's a higher chance of there being an outbreak there. But also, you know, it follows the same trends that we know about how COVID-19 impacts maybe more lower income populations. But the county, they aren't doing enough contact tracing or the, the detailed amount of contact tracing to really be able to say these two diners at this restaurant caught COVID-19 from the server. We just we just don't know that because the the time span is so long. So you could be a restaurant and have two different people who are at your restaurant on different days end up testing positive. And so it's possible that that server, you know, passed COVID-19 on to the two different diners or it's possible the server didn't even interact with those people and it's just, you know, an odds game that three people ended up being in that location over 14 days. The county isn't tracking enough information to be able to, you know, definitively make make those determinations. And we should note the county did not want this report published in the media. Um, why was that and what was their reasoning? Right. So KPBS, along with two other news organizations, Voice of San Diego and the San Diego Union Tribune, um, have been trying to get this information for a long time, ever since 
the county started in their in their briefings basically releasing outbreaks just by category where they would say bar slash restaurant business bar slash restaurant and we were hearing so much from from our listeners and viewers and readers can you please tell us more we want to be able to make decisions about where we go and where it's safe to go and and we just didn't have that information so we sued the county along with those other news outlets um, to get the information and the county has has always said one argument is that their contact tracing program would really break down if this more detailed information were made public because businesses would maybe be afraid to report to the county that they've had an outbreak because they knew that 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 information was going to be made public. I should note, first of all, that it's against the law for businesses to not report that information. And also other parts of the country, they publish this information, Los Angeles County basically publishes very similar to what we've published on KPBS and businesses are, are still reporting. And so last month, uh, a judge ruled that the county can continue, ruled against us basically, that the county can continue to, to keep that information secret. But we are still appealing that. Um, our hope would be that, that the county would provide this information on an ongoing basis with regular updates instead of the one-time release of information that we've done today. So so how did you get this information? Well, I can't specifically say, but I, I can say that, that these records come from the county. They are county records, and we did a lot of work to authenticate them, check them, uh, double-check them, triple-check them, and then do the analysis that, that we've provided on KPBS today. And the database is on the KPBS website, correct? Yes, that's right. So you can go to, um, it's kpbs.org slash outbreaks, and there's lots of different charts and analysis there. Uh, one that I think is actually really interesting is it is a um, time lapse where you can see kind of early on assisted living centers, nursing homes had the largest number of outbreaks. And then as things start opening up over the summer, uh, the numbers really go up for retailers and restaurants, things like that. But you can also um, search we have the database where you can search outbreaks by zip code, by name, by city, um, and then also another list of uh, outbreaks in November where you can see the total number of cases at each outbreak, and that you can also search as well. And so that's all at kpbs.org outbreaks. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Claire, thank you very much. Thank you. San Diego County healthcare workers received the first doses of a COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer last week. And a second emergency-approved COVID-19 vaccine developed by Moderna should be heading here soon. County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten and Health and Human Services Director Nick Maschione spoke with KPBS health reporter Taryn Minto to provide an update on the rollout and discuss the challenges ahead. How has the rollout gone so far? So far, it's gone uh, very well. Uh, as you know, we've gotten just over 28,000 doses. So, so far, I've heard uh, stories from uh, many of the hospital systems. They've gotten, the providers have uh, obtained their vaccination, and things are going well. Yeah, I'll just add, uh, Taryn, that uh, in talking with uh, some of the hospital CMOs, talking to my own medical director, County Psych Hospital, um, 
just the amazing turnout. Um, you know, we didn't know, or, you know, people are going to show up and it's been done in a very uh, calm and orderly way, uh, but with great uh, urgency. And so uh, I can tell you like for County Psych Hospital in our first day when we scheduled, I think with the exception of a handful of folks that we had to reschedule, uh, almost everyone else was there, we got uh, and got their vaccine. And so I think that's a great indication thus far uh, of the uh, um, healthcare workers uh, lining up, getting their vaccine and, and understanding that we're, we're gonna have to do this in a phased approach, obviously as Dr. Wu pointed out as we get more. Was there an unexpected challenge, you know, that came your way and, and how did you work around it? We've received a small number of doses to date. So things so far have uh, gone well. There are no particular challenges that I'm aware of, but we know that we're getting more vaccine. We anticipate that we'll get vaccine after the Moderna uh, vaccines or go through the various approval processes with the FDA and CDC. And then we will get, there are six different vaccines that will be coming down the pike. So we will be getting four other vaccinations, but I feel confident that we will be able to manage that because we have the San Diego Immunization Registry and we can determine who's been vaccinated or not and what vaccine they've received. And providers will be checking that uh, SDIR so that they make sure they give uh, individuals the appropriate vaccine when they come in for vaccination? You know, the, the challenge is that the way that vaccine arrives um, is for us, for our hospitals, 13 hospitals or so, um, you know, four of them are getting it directly and then nine come through us. So it'd be nice if it was one air traffic control, but, you know, we have multiple. And so it, it requires that extra challenge of communicating to make sure that we're getting our fair share uh, a vaccine into the region. And so that's communicating with our hospital partners, which has, again, has worked great uh, because of the cooperation and collaboration we have. We know that decisions on allocations, where things are going, uh, priority groups are set by federal and, and state agencies. But I know that the county's clinical advisory group was talking about approaching their mission through the through an equity lens. And so, what control over equitable distribution does the county have, and and how would you be relying on this advisory group to inform that? Well, the first important thing is to note is that we do not get all of the vaccines at one time. If that was the case, we could uh, facilitate everyone uh, being vaccinated in the various phases, as well as the tiers. The area where the advisory committee uh, will uh, or could or will help is with phase 1C, which is those individuals with underlying medical conditions and 65 years of age and older, and also when vaccines are to be delivered to uh, young adults 30 years and younger and then the general population. So we will have discussions about that. Uh, actually, the next meeting, I believe, is Tuesday. So we will have discussions about that. It comes to a point when you get into some categories, um, even subcategories, depending on how much vaccine is available, uh, to your point, um, how do we look at how the pandemic impacts place and people? And it impacts place and people differently. Uh, we, we just have to look at South Bay uh, to understand that. And, uh, and I would add place, people, and providers, because our hospitals are more adversely impacted in South Bay. 
So where we have that discretion, um, and I say we are clinical advisory, uh, and that's why it's, it's fantastic to have leaders across the county, in the community, in public health and systems coming together and saying, you know, how do we ensure um, that we get it as best to the right folks at the right time based on the limitations we have? And that's when you start talking about that we may not be seeing uh, as we go further in this distribution, a kind of cookie cutter approach because the, the pandemic is spread across, but it is impacting people and place and providers differently. And, and using a health equity lens kind of guides you in those discussions. And that's in fact where I think more of the clinical advisory group will be having in the coming weeks. You know, the next group in the second tier of phase 1A is skilled nursing facilities. And there, um, we already talked about the overlap with the county and the state in terms of shipping and allocating and, and, and getting it to the right places. So with skilled nursing facilities, is that going to be handled by the county or, or the state or is there overlap there as well? What we're literally doing is ensuring that no one is left behind. Uh, and what I mean by that is working with the list that we get from the state, working with the Walgreens and CBS of who they have uh, covered so that the remaining are the ones we immediately focus on. Um, they are our highest priority. I mean, as you follow the tiers, right, in the rollout. So um, as we speak, we have a whole team focusing on and trying to get to determine who is remaining that's not covered by the pharmacies so that we can then um, reach, and then this is an in-reach because in these facilities, they can't come to a site, right? We have to go into them. And so this is a, um, a kind of a, 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 a unprecedented effort to, to get to this sector, to this magnitude in, in, a, in a rapid way so we're working on, and we'll be releasing pretty soon, really novel approaches, activating um, our workforce that, remember, can only be uh, uh, licensed physicians or nurses or paramedics or so forth. So being as creative in our ways of the workforce that we have to get into these facilities, many of which who do not have a nurse. You know, skilled nursing facilities are different and yet they still need assistance from the, the retail pharmacies. The long-term care facilities, assisted living facilities, may some of them may not have a, you know, a, a nurse as readily available as SNFs. So a tremendous amount of thought has been going on into um, how do we get to them throughout our county? We've already mapped them out. And then that's kind of, that's the work that's happening as we speak. And as vaccine comes in and we know who is, again, not, we already canvassed, that's when we start getting into those facilities. One of the things that keeps coming up is um, whether places can mandate or will mandate someone getting uh, the vaccine. What what would be your role mm -hmm. in supporting or endorsing businesses, asking people to or holding them to getting it? And and what will the county do for its own employees when it comes their time in the in the schedule? At this point, I have no plan to mandate. And in the general public, we can't mandate. People will have the right to make their own decisions. They have the right to make their own decisions. We will educate them and ensure that they understand the rationale for the recommendations. But at the end of the day, if they want, don't want to be vaccinated, and, there, and for some, there might be reasons why, medical reasons why they can't. But uh, at this point, no plan for mandating the vaccination.
That was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento speaking with the county's Nick Maschione and Dr. Wilma Wooten. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. A farm in South Bay aims to increase community access to affordable and fresh fruit, vegetables, and flowers. In this story we first bought you earlier this year, KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler tells us about the Pishka Farm Stand's unique business structure and how it could point a way forward for urban agriculture. On a Tuesday afternoon, the Pishka Farm Stand is open for business. It's one of the few places where people can buy fresh fruit and veggies directly from a farmer in the South Bay. Perfect. Thank you. While smaller farms are typically owned by families who often manage their workers, Pishka Farms is different. The workers are the ones who own it. Everyone's a leader here, or that's how worker co-ops typically are. We all have a decision on our production, we, we have that control, that immediate control. We decide what to do as a collective and how to proceed as a business. Jose Alcaraz grew up in San Isidro. He has a degree in environmental engineering, but decided to become a farmer and part owner of a farm after he found out about Pishka two years ago. I found this place and I just never left. Around a mile from the border, the ocean and the desert, Pishka sits in the Tijuana River Valley. The year-round growing season means farmers can pack in a lot of produce inside its small footprint and experiment with what will flourish and what won't. This is where we do all our seedlings. We've got some beets, some fennel. Leonard Vargas is a third-generation farmer in Southern California. Vargas started the farm in 2017 with the idea of making fresher food available to communities that lack access to it. Really one of the things that we wanted to do was start to provide vegetables to some of those communities that are in food deserts. This gives us kind of a a real close proximity to that so we can start to move that into those communities, particularly in the South Bay, seems to be struggling with that. Shortly after Vargas began leasing the land from the county, he was joined by Cristina Juarez, who's from Tijuana. The farm, like the surrounding area, is bilingual. Together, they realized that a workers' cooperative was the best way forward for the farm. She said, I believe you could do work with more heart, when you feel equal to the other person, when you don't expect orders from them, when you feel like they won't scold you because something is different. And so you're putting your heart and your soul and your knowledge into something. But it hasn't been easy. With four worker owners, they're just beginning to pay themselves minimum wage. And nature hasn't exactly been cooperating. When the Tijuana River Valley floods, all the produce it touches has to be thrown out. 
we had a, a little flood that came through here uh, early December of last year and took out all our vegetable crops. So Pishka had to get creative. So at that point, we decided to go ahead and add cut flower store mix so that we could be more sustainable in case of anything else that came along like that because we are in a floodplain. And then we found that uh, people really liked them and so we continued to grow them and keep them in our mix. They now sell their flowers at the farm stand and at shops like Gem Coffee in City Heights. Do you have a bag? The newest worker owner, Eric Rodriguez, also grew up in South San Diego. He was furloughed from his longtime job at the beginning of the pandemic. He started helping with Pishka and, like Jose, soon couldn't bring himself to leave. For him, connecting the community to agriculture is a huge part of what Pishka does. They sell and give away saplings for people to plant in their home gardens. A child came and bought a pepper plant, and then he came back like every week showing me the progress of his pepper plant. And then finally, when he harvested the paper plant, he ate it. And I was just, you know, like, I was just like so into it that he was so into it. Pishka, whose farm stand is open Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday afternoons in the South Bay, is hoping to kick off a local urban farming movement following the worker cooperative model, especially among people of color. We're an example to other POC that we, they can be part of a business and part of an industry because we, whether we want to or not, we're still part of the system, but in our own way with our ownership and it feels really good. And I feel a lot more people, more, more farmers should definitely feel that. Max Rivlin-Nadler, KPBS News. The warming climate is putting environmental pressure on California forests that have towered over the Golden State for thousands of years. As part of the KPBS Climate Change Desk, we revisit a story from KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson, who says underwater forests are also facing challenges from the heat. Ed Parnell didn't have to walk far from San Diego Scripps Pier to find strands of giant kelp washed up on the beach. The root system is called the holdfast that holds the kelp plant to the bottom. Right there you can see that. They really aren't roots. The Scripps Institution of Oceanography biologist says that's how the algae stays anchored to the ocean floor. Once anchored, they grow up. Basically it puts out these stipes and each individual stipe puts out these blades that then make it up to the surface for it to photosynthesize up near the surface. Small gas-filled bubbles carry the long stems to the surface where the blades can soak up the sunshine. Parnell says giant kelp can grow up to two feet a day, making it one of the fastest growing living things on the planet. The canopy depends on how much bottom, hard bottom, is located at depth. Here off San Diego, we have the two largest kelp forests off the west coast because we have hard bottom that the kelp can attach to um, in, over large areas. Underwater, the giant kelp forests off the coast of La Jolla and Point Loma can be spectacular. Biologists have compared them to an underwater forest of sequoias. But unlike the giant trees, kelp grows fast and dies fast. These young kelp that were videotaped just off the shores of San Diego are already reaching skyward in the cool Pacific Ocean. Plants can quickly reach lengths of 100 feet, but their lifespan is pretty short in this vital but delicate ecosystem. Parnell says the kelp provide food and habitat. But the kelp forest, the bottom hosts a lot of habitat for species that live in the kelp forest over their entire lifetime. 
Parnell says giant kelp in San Diego is under siege. Storms and sea urchins have taken a toll, but the potentially more devastating issue is heat. That's on full display at the end of Scripps Pier, where Sean Bruce was one of many people who performed a daily ritual. So the sample we take is about two feet off the bottom, two to three feet off the bottom. Uh, the heavy weight ensures that no matter the surge or the swell that day, um, it'll stay in a fixed position. He's taking temperature readings of the ocean, and those daily temperature readings show that the ocean has been warming here since the mid-1970s. Temperatures hit a sustained peak in 2015 and 2016, and then set records just two years later. The heat is devastating for the fast-growing kelp. Parnell shared a video of a rocky, barren seabed near La Jolla that has yet to recover from those heat waves. It's a rocky area that should be full of kelp. And the problem is not limited to Southern California. Australia, Tasmania, um, especially up in New England, um, also in Europe. And so it's a phenomenon that is affecting these ecosystems uh, in both northern and southern hemispheres. Mark Carr studies evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. One of the consequences that warm water temperature has is it reduces the nutrient availability um, to the algae in shallower waters. Southern California kelp are not yet at the point where they're struggling to survive, but the iconic underwater habitat is at risk. Climate science predicts oceans will continue to warm, and data confirms that the trend has been underway for some time. The concern is whether we're now going to start to experience more and more of these heat waves over time. Scripps researcher Ed Parnell says the iconic kelp may already be in trouble, and that could have a dramatic impact on the region's nearshore habitat. They host you know, hundreds of species themselves and are the, provide, they provide shelter, habitat, and food for many, many species. And losing the kelp forest will make the ocean a little less appealing to humans who dive in the underwater forests will remove a small slice of the state's coastal tourism economy. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The studio door has been pivoting since long before the pandemic. It has had to change locations and rethink ways to both present art exhibits as well as spaces for artists to work. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Studio Door owner and artist Patrick Stillman. Patrick, you run and operate the Studio Door here in San Diego. So first of all, tell us what the Studio Door is and in normal times what you would be doing. Well, the Studio Door is Hillcrest Premier Art Gallery in the heart of Hillcrest. And we are a uh, local artist gallery. We have artist studios. And under normal circumstances, we would be having concerts, workshops, and performances. So when this pandemic hit back in March, 
What were kind of the initial steps you took to kind of adjust to that? Well, in March, it was very daunting because everything truly shut down. And there was sort of this panic about what's going to happen next. So we went dark. But I think that as an owner of a business, I was working twice as hard trying to come up with ideas of how to stay relevant. So I started to work on our website, e-commerce, focusing on the studio artists who were no longer able to sort of put themselves out there and start thinking about ways that I could try to be relevant online. And as this pandemic has continued on for months, what kind of things have you found have been successful and what have, what ways have you found to kind of connect artists with community and with buyers and display their art? You know, I think it's really a challenging time. I've seen the studio door as sort of a bellwether of how people are feeling about COVID or politics. It's been a real swing back and forth for people to want to be out of their house, engage, think about buying something like uh, the arts uh, to enhance their life. And so no one approach has been the true way to go. Sort of have to throw the spaghetti on the wall and try a lot of different approaches and just realize that the response is going to be dependent upon how people are collectively feeling. So we're lucky in some ways that during this pandemic, we have a lot of technology at our disposal. So what kind of things have you been doing through either social media or through Zoom meetings that have proven successful? So one of the things that I've been doing for the local artists here that have a studio practice is I've been promoting them a lot online. We've been doing video interviews. We've actually walked through the gallery to capture what is going on that people would normally see when they come in. And also maybe for the first time, we're doing some online advertising to reach people who might be online and searching for art. And what has this pandemic meant for the artists who have studios there? Are they still able to access that and do their work there? It's been a challenging time for the business, but I think even more so for hardworking artists. Those artists that are professional artists trying to make a living at art are having some really serious times trying to maintain a studio practice, get their art in front of people who are interested in purchasing it. It's been really challenging. I've seen some artists move out of town for financial reasons, and they're searching for ways that they can remain relevant, and they might not have thought about those um, opportunities before. So it's a challenging time for working artists. And are your artists actually able to still come into the studios at the studio door? Yes. Studio artists are considered light manufacturing. So um, as long as they keep to their studios, they're allowed to be in the space and continue working. Hearing you use a, a definition of an artist like that makes me think of how much people have had to learn about what they do and how it's defined by the state and how daily changes in these lockdowns affect them. So how is it for you to have to deal with 
things that are constantly changing and that you can't really plan for because you don't know if a month down the road something you're planning on doing was okay to do and suddenly is not? Yeah, it's been very confusing trying to keep up with all of the changes that the state and county put on to us. Uh, we definitely think of ourselves as artists in the gallery, and all of a sudden we're now forced to start looking at what does retail mean? What does light manufacturing mean? It's extremely challenging. And then along that same line, we're in a community, in a neighborhood. And so when restaurants and bars close, it's impacting, you know, the foot traffic that comes into a small boutique or a gallery. And you are a gallery space. So have you figured out a way to do kind of an online exhibition at this point? Or are people allowed into the gallery space physically? So we're allowed to have capacity at 20%. I wish that we had capacity at 20%. Right now it's a bit of a ghost town. We um, uh, feel very optimistic about keeping the arts out in the public and in front of people. I am having art exhibitions that are ongoing. Some are featuring local artists like our affordable art marketplace. So we bring in affordable small pieces from local artists um, at this time of year. But we're gonna move right into January with our regular programming of featuring six artists um, in the main gallery. And so the challenge now is to come up with ways that we can do that in person, but also online. And so we're doing a lot more artists' videos, interviews, you know, spotlights on specific works of art, actually moving in the direction of the gallery in ways that we hadn't been before. And financially, how difficult is it to stay afloat when your main source of income is really being, you know, infringed upon? So I've always been a good businessman and not always in the arts. And so when the opportunities came to seek out uh, government assistance, I went in full force. And I'm one of the few businesses, small businesses that benefited from PPP disaster loan, and even some local funds from city and county governments. So without those funds, I don't think we would have been able to stay open. But in some ways, especially with the loan from the federal government, I think, man, I've worked so hard to put myself into so much debt. And that's going to be a real challenge in 2021 for me and I'm sure other small businesses. And in coming up with ways to deal with presenting artists in this pandemic, have you started to do things that as you head into 2021, you may continue to do even though you may not have to, like some online components or, you know, things like that? Because it seems like a lot of arts organizations are innovating in ways that may prove beneficial beyond just the pandemic. Yeah, I think that on the positive side of the pandemic, uh, arts organizations like the Studio Door have been able to come up with uh, innovative online programming that we didn't really have the time or didn't feel was as a top priority in the past is now becoming an essential part of how we operate. And how do you feel now in terms of the position Studio Door is in? Are you uh, optimistic that 
you're going to be able to stay afloat if this stay at home stays in place for another number of months or, you know, uh, what's kind of your outlook right now? I think I have a lot of uncertainty about the coming new year and how we're going to survive that. I certainly am hoping that patrons will step up and return to the gallery in ways that they did before this pandemic hit. But overall, I feel, I think I'm an optimist when it comes to my heart. So I'm optimistically looking forward to the new year and I'm gonna do everything I can to keep the doors open, but it's gonna be uh, difficult times ahead. I wanna thank you very much for talking to me about struggling through the pandemic at the studio door. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with someone here in the arts community and small business. We appreciate everything that you do and uh, hope that we all can look forward to a new year. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Patrick Stillman of The Door Studio. Check out the holiday art market at thestudiodoor.com. have arguably taken the biggest hit in the COVID-19 pandemic. They have the highest death rate with the strict stay-at-home orders. Life for them can at times feel like house arrest. Today we're revisiting a popular story from KPBS reporter Amitha Sharma about a City Heights woman who is crooning her way through the lockdown. Yes, I love to sing. I love to sing for the people 72-year-old Esmeralda Sanchez discovered her talent for music late in life. I was over 60 before I realized it was a gift, that it's a real gift. I'll give you a sample if you don't mind. Smile though your heart is aching. Smile even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky you'll get by Before the coronavirus crisis Sanchez says life was full and she lived it outside of her tiny senior housing studio I did enjoy very much going to Balboa Park I'd sing and play a little bit and then I'd go into the senior center I'd play bingo, usually one at least one game and then I'd come out and I'd sing and play some more. I have a lot of instruments, and uh, which I only brought the guitar, but I have a whole box of instruments that kids used to be able to come over and handle the instruments and play with them, you know, pretend that they're the musician. So of course I miss that tremendously. And now, over two months into the shelter-in-place directive, this native New Yorker also misses her friends. I've been here only a year, but I got accustomed to going into the dining room and associating. And as I told you, I started a group, we call ourselves Queens, Queens from Queens. And we don't do that anymore. We still socialize on the phone and we still get together, but we're not in the dining room, that one-on-one kind of everyday sort of thing. That's not happening. I miss human contact. Sanchez says an unexpected benefit of the lockdown is that it's helped her unlock her true self. I learned that I'm a survivor. I think more than anything. I feel, I believe, for me, the learning is that I'm meant to be here. 
I'm meant to be here, and I don't fully understand it. And I hope that amongst all the words and the gibberish that comes out of my mouth that maybe someone else will glean an idea of what it is. But I feel that I've learned to love and to forgive. If you can't forgive, then you can't communicate, you can't collaborate, you can't get along to save this planet, to save our Earth. So as a person who holds a grudge for the first time in countless years, I spoke to a sister of mine that I just don't, I love you, you know, from a distance. <laughs> but we speak on the phone now. So I learned to forgive. What advice would you give to other seniors who during this time might be feeling neglected, isolated, lonely? Just get up in the morning and make the bed. It's incredible, but make that, spread it up, throw a pretty pillow on it, whatever. Uh, move around as much as you possibly can. Uh, do what you can for yourself. You know, we're all until we are old people. <laughs> we do have our old people ways, doing our old people things, you know. But sometimes, like now, reach out. Step outside of that little box that we're in and reach out to people. Because just like you might need someone, that person that you knock on the door, that might be just the thing to keep them from the hangman's robe or the pills or the dope or whatever foolishness that they might think is better than being alive. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile. Amita Sharma, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu.